Hello, and welcome to this Biblical Education series on the book of Exodus. You can find this series and others online at onefellowshipumc.org and on the One Fellowship Church podcast. Visit us online to learn more about our congregation and the work that we do in Waco, Texas. Thank you, and enjoy. My friends, we come here then to the final, uh, the, the final week in our study of the book of Exodus. And uh, for this evening, one of the things that I would like to focus on is kind of the impact of the Exodus story on the rest of Scripture. Uh, the Exodus event um, is arguably one of the most important memories in the biblical textual tradition in, uh, in the Hebrew Bible. And so I want to look through some ways in which the stories of the Exodus, the language of the Exodus, echoes throughout the rest of Scripture and how it sets the stage for how we understand what is going to unfold in the rest of the biblical narratives. And so, my friends, without further ado, if you will, please join me in prayer this evening. Lord, we give you thanks for this evening. We give you thanks for the opportunity to gather, for the opportunity to, uh, to read, to explore, to ponder, and to question. Lord, we ask that in this time that you will unsettle our hearts so that we see things in a new light as we explore this text. And we ask, Lord, that when you unsettle our hearts, that when we look up from the text, we will see the world around us in a new light. As we look at the world around us right now, Lord, we pray for peace and for healing. We pray for justice. We pray for a reconstruction, Lord. We pray, Lord, that your spirit will move in our midst. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. My friends, let us dive right in to Exodus, and particularly the heritage of the Exodus event, the heritage of the Exodus story. Um, references to the Exodus occur all throughout the rest of the biblical tradition. You're going to get them in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In fact, the Exodus event is arguably the single most referenced event in the Hebrew Bible. It is going to form the foundation for the Israelite uh, un understanding of their relationship with God. And of course, that forms the foundation for the Christian understanding of our relationship with God. Uh, it is hard to, un to understate how important the Exodus event is. Um, one of the things that I have mentioned earlier in this study is the way in which Moses becomes sort of an archetype for what it means to be a prophet. This is just one example of the many ways in which this Exodus language, this Exodus imagery echoes throughout the rest of the Bible. So, for example, we mentioned that um, in Moses's call narrative, Exodus chapter 3 through 4, uh, recall that Moses is called as a prophet, God shows up, and this call narrative is very important for understanding the subsequent commission of Moses and the mission of Moses. Now, we noted that one of the unique things about Moses' call here, one of the things that really stands out in the story, is that Moses is very hesitant to accept this calling. He is not confident in himself. And one of the things that Moses says is that he cannot speak. We get this in Exodus uh, chapter 4, um, verse 10. Moses says to the Lord, uh, forgive me, Lord, but I am not eloquent. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. And what's interesting is God has this great response where he says, well, who gives people their mouths? 
Who gives them speech? It, it's I, the Lord. So go, he says in verse, uh, God says in verse 12, go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. And it's this fascinating uh, uh, story that unfolds where Moses called to be a prophet. The job of a prophet is to speak the word of the Lord. Um, but Moses has a problem. Moses cannot speak. And so the Lord is going to have to help him speak. And this is one, one of the things that kind of sets up the, the storytelling to show that what Moses does is not by his own talent or his own ability, but rather by the leading of God. And that, that's, that's one thing that's very important to, to recognize, not just here in the story, but when we reflect theologically on God's calling on our lives, oftentimes God calls us to step outside of our comfort zones and oftentimes calls us to step outside of the perceived boundaries of our abilities. That is to say, to stretch what we think we are capable of. Um, but uh, what, what we notice here is that this, this imagery of a prophet as someone who's uncertain about themselves, this presentation of a prophet as someone who, can, who, who cannot speak on their own, this actually echoes all throughout the biblical text. So prophets that come later on in the biblical story are all going to be presented in this same way, as coming in the same way as Moses. Um, and we see a, a hint of this in Deuteronomy 18. Now, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, is a very uh, famous passage. This is the place where um, uh, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking, and he says, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And oftentimes in Christianity, when we think of that verse, the Lord shall raise up for you a prophet like me, uh, we interpret that as sort of foreshadowing the coming of Jesus. Now, one thing that we have to remember, though, is within its broader context, this isn't actually speaking about a single prophet. It's not saying when the Lord raises up for you a single prophet like me in the future, uh, in the context of Deuteronomy 18, it is talking about how you receive communication from God. How do you hear a word from the Lord? And so in verses 9 through 14, uh, it, it prohibits these various forms of divination, necromancy, and so on and so forth. It says those are not the way to hear words from God. So how do you hear words from God? In verses 15 through 19, it says the way that you hear words from the Lord is by way of a prophet. And then in verses 20 through 22, it tells the people, how do you understand uh, the, the difference between a prophet who truly came from the Lord and one who does not? And so the chapter ends with this question, how do you uh, distinguish the true from the false prophets? And, and so within that larger context, we can see that Deuteronomy 18.15 is actually speaking about uh, when the Lord raises up a prophet like in the future, not a single prophet, but other prophets will come. And when they come, you will listen to them. They will come in the way of Moses or like Moses. And so we see this when future prophets show up in the biblical narratives, in the biblical story. Think, for example, of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, the call narrative of Isaiah when Isaiah is in the temple. Isaiah gets this, this phenomenal vision of the Lord seated on the throne, the, the, the seraphs all around. And there's this point when Isaiah comes to a realization standing there gazing into this, this uh, sort of heavenly throne room scene. Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, I am ruined. And notice why Isaiah is ruined. For I am a man of unclean 
lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Notice that. What's the problem with Isaiah? It's his lips. He, he, and so in, in verse 6, one of these seraphim have to, uh, have to pick up a coal off the altar and touch Isaiah's mouth so that then he can speak the words that God will place in his mouth. And so notice that, just like how Moses said, I, I can't speak, and God says, I'm going to place the words in your mouth, or God says, I'm going to give you these words. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah says, woe is me, I have unclean lips. And so the seraph comes, purifies the lips, and now God's going to put the words in. We get a similar thing in Jeremiah chapter 1. In Jeremiah's call narrative, Jeremiah at one point calls out and says, Lord, I cannot speak, I'm too young. And so what does the Lord say? The Lord says, don't say I'm too young. You must go to everyone that I send you to and say what I command you. And he says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I will rescue you. And, and the Lord goes on to say, I, I will put those words in your mouth. Once again, that echoing of Moses, the prophets called, I can't speak. Don't worry. I'll put the words in your mouth. And, you know, we, we can go down the line of, of different ways that the prophets echo the tradition of Moses. I mean, by the time we get to Ezekiel, you know, Ezekiel's funny. Um, with Isaiah, you know, his, his mouth is touched. With uh, Jeremiah, the words are placed in his mouth. With Ezekiel, he has, all, he has to eat an entire scroll, uh, not to be outdone. Ezekiel is uh, one of the prophets that definitely is um, one-upping all of the imagery uh, that you see in sort of former prophetic pronouncements and imagery. But uh, that's, that's just one way in which we see the Exodus tradition echoing throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. And, and what we find is that the entire Exodus tradition, the Exodus story, becomes a, really a foundation for how the Israelites conceive of themselves in relationship to God and themselves in relationship to the world around them. Uh, take, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5 is the retelling of the Ten Commandments. And we talked about the Ten Commandments earlier on. Uh, they first show up in Exodus chapter 20, and they are restated or retold in Deuteronomy chapter 5. The book of Deuteronomy as a whole is framed as Moses retelling the laws or uh, retelling the words of God, Torah, before the Israelites enter into the land. And so the word Deuteronomy actually means second law, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, second law. So we get this retelling of the Ten Commandments, and in the Sabbath commandment, recall in the book of Exodus, uh, it tells the Israelites to um, obey the Sabbath, and why? Well, because God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And so there's this sense that we, as the people of God, pattern our lives after the ways of God. We see that God works in this way, and so we pattern our lives to harmonize with the way that God works in this world. Deuteronomy 5 restates these laws, but gives a different reason. It says, observe the Sabbath by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor your animals, nor... And it keeps going. And it even says, nor the foreigner residing in your towns. Everyone gets to rest. It does not matter where you fall 
on the social hierarchy of society, everyone gets to rest. It does not matter whether or not you are a visitor or a native-born citizen. Everyone gets this rest. Why? Verse 15. Remember, you were once slaves in Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Why is it? That when you as the people of God observe this rest, that you extend that same rest to everyone else in society. Well, because you know what it was like to live in Egypt and to not have been granted rest. And in this sense, um, the Exodus story becomes the foundation for how the Israelites treat others in their society. Why do you take care of people in their hour of need? Well, because you were once in need in someone else's land. You know what it was like. And now you have a responsibility to be sure that that injustice never happens in this world again. Why do you grant rest to people in this world, whether or not you count them as part of your kin? Well, because you know what it was like to be taken advantage of. And now you have a responsibility to be sure that never happens again. We see this show up again in Deuteronomy chapter 15. It shows up a lot in Deuteronomy. Um, Deuteronomy 15 is, is a fascinating chapter. It's all about canceling debts and servitude. And uh, one of the things to understand about the ancient world, and, and we see this in other legal codes uh, in the ancient uh, Mediterranean world, uh, the ancient Mesopotamian world in particular, that there are legal codes that are designed to protect people who are vulnerable and particularly to protect them from being taken advantage of, uh, using things like debt and stuff like that. Um, one of the things that these codes often recognize is that uh, one of the keys to preventing people from falling into generational poverty is land ownership. If people own land, then, then they always have a way of generating something, of sustaining themselves in some way. If you lose that land though, you lose an ability to, uh, to generate your own food, to, to, to raise up your own food, to grow your own food, um, to take care of yourself. And then you're really just subject to what other people are willing to give you. Whenever hard times hit, the landless oftentimes were the first to be impacted because you're only paid when people are willing to pay you. <clears throat> and so a lot of the things that we see in these ancient law codes have to deal with being sure that people don't get taken advantage of using debt. One of the things that could happen in the ancient world was if you got into debt and you couldn't pay it off, well, the debt, uh, the, the debt collectors could claim your land. And if they claim your land, then you have no way of paying it off eventually. They could even threaten to sell you into slavery. And there are even instances in which people would uh, sell themselves or their families into slavery in order to pay off these debts. Now, here's the problem is once you are in that situation, are you ever going to be able to climb out of it? You see, and that's what creates this, this, this generational poverty, this generational servitude, these generational injustices. And so in Deuteronomy 15, it's trying to construct a world in which that cannot happen, a world in which debts do not become crushing on people and permanently subjugate them. Uh, it's 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 fascinating to think about how important controlling the injustice that debt can be used for in this chapter. Now we we can take a moment to recognize that that uh, its system by no means would be perfect by modern standards, but the desire is still there. So in Deuteronomy 15, it talks about canceling debts. It talks about releasing uh, servants. It says if someone uh, sells themselves into slavery to you, you um, uh, well I'll, I'll just read it here. Verse 12. It says if any of your people, Hebrew men or women, 
sell themselves to you and serve you for six years. In the seventh year, you let them go free. And when you release them, you do not send them away empty-handed. You supply them generously from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. So if someone sells themselves, well, at the end of that time, you pay them for their service. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. These people work for you. You share the blessings that, that are reaped from that labor with them. Okay, but why? Here's the key. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. Why is it that we should be concerned in society, being sure that people who, who are sold into this position of, of, of slavery in the ancient world are taken care of? Well, because as Israelites, you know what it was like. And so you have a responsibility now to protect people. All throughout Torah, you get this. Why do you care for people in their hour of need? Well, because you were once in need in Egypt. Uh, I'll, I'll do one more. Deuteronomy 24, 17 through 18. Um, it talks about caring for those who are most vulnerable in society. Verse 17. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice. Remember, in the ancient world, someone who did not have a father to, to sort of uh, um, advocate for them, they could be left vulnerable. Um, other people could snatch up their land inheritance if you weren't old enough to really claim it. Uh, foreigners in the land, um, foreigners are very vulnerable because they often are not protected by the same laws, something that might be important for us to reflect on in our modern society, but I'm going to step away from that for just one moment. Do not take the cloak of a widow as a pledge. Remember, verse 18, that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I command you to do this. We can keep going. Verse 19, when you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for someone. Leave it for the foreigner. Leave it for the fatherless. Leave it for the widow. Leave it for someone in need so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat olives from the trees, don't go back a second time. Leave something for people in need. Why? Verse 22, remember, you were once slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Why do you care for people in their hour of need? Well, because you know what it was like to be in need in someone else's land. Why do you care for foreigners who could be taken advantage of? Well, because you know what it was like to be a foreigner in someone else's land to be taken advantage of. All throughout Torah, the fact that the Israelites went through Egypt forms a foundation for how they treat others. You know what it was like to be taken advantage of. So now you have a responsibility to structure society in such a way so that that does not happen. To structure society so that crushing debt does not contribute to generational poverty. To structure a society so that people who come into your land as foreigners are not taken advantage of. So that people who find themselves without a father or a mother to advocate for them are not going to be taken advantage of. Remarkably powerful words for us in our modern society, where debt is oftentimes crushing. Whether it's student debt, medical debt, credit card debt, we could go on and on and on. A remarkably powerful thing to reflect on in a society in which immigrants, foreigners have oftentimes been demonized. The words of Torah still speak today. Let's continue. The, the Exodus story 
forms a foundation for how Israelites understand the way they relate to others. It also forms a foundation for how they understand the way they relate to God. Uh, so, you know, we could look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, for example. And Deuteronomy chapter 7, I, I want to preface this by saying this is a really troubling chapter. Uh, this is a chapter that talks about things like holy war and stuff. Uh, it's it's uh, really difficult um, to engage with, to interpret in, in some sense. and would be uh, actually something that I've been thinking about um, using the craft of study uh, in the future to think through interpreting some of these really difficult passages. But one of the things that, uh, that Deuteronomy 7 does is, is it grounds the entire Israelite relationship with God on this event. This is the foundation for them. Um, it says in verse 7, The Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous than other people's, uh, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you kept, and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to the thousandth generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. How is it, uh, why is it that we are the people of God? Well, God made this covenant with the ancestors and remembered that covenant. That's why. Um, what is the foundation for the Israelite relationship with God here? Well, it's God delivered them. God heard them. God went back and found them. You, you get a similar thing in Hosea chapter 11. Hosea 11, uh, Hosea is, is a, um, uh, the book of Hosea presents the relationship between the Israelites and God using a lot of familial language. So uh, sometimes it will frame God as a husband and either the Israelites or the land as, as a wife. Sometimes it frames God as a father and, um, and the Israelites as a child. And sometimes these, these metaphors um, become really troubling, uh, but they become very powerful for conveying sort of this, this uh, level of, um, of intimacy, we could almost say, um, in the sense of like an emotional connection that connects to not just feelings of love, but feelings of anger, rage, jealousy, I mean, the, the whole spectrum. And that's, that's where these metaphors become really difficult to think through. Uh, Hosea chapter 11 presents Israel as a child, and God says, I loved him. And then God says, out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they ran away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to images. It, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they didn't know. They, they didn't realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? And, and here, this, this really uh, powerful imagery begins and ends with the imagery of Egypt. God calls them out of Egypt, but they run away from God. So where do they end up again? Right back in Egypt. The Exodus event becomes the foundation for all of this. Uh, now, one, one of the things to note is that even though the Exodus becomes the foundation for how the Israelites understand the nature of their relationship with God, 
um, that also comes with, with some pretty heavy responsibilities and even consequences. You know, so we think about Amos chapter 3, for example. Amos chapter 3, um, Amos says, Hear this word, O people of Israel. The word of the Lord has spoken, the, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family that I brought up from Egypt. You only have I chosen from all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your sins. It's, it's this sense that out of all the nations, God brought this, this one up from Egypt. God delivered this one. God chose this one. And as a result, God sees now what this one has done. Even when it's not, even, even when it's, uh, when it's not good, when it's soliciting judgment. Um, why is it that the Israelites face this judgment? Well, it all goes back to the fact that they've got this unique relationship uh, with God based on the Exodus. Um, in fact, uh, in the next chapter, in, in Amos chapter 4, um, at one point, God is even saying, you know, I sent all of these warnings to you, yet you refuse to repent. And one of those warnings is I sent plagues in the manner of Egypt. Remember, Egypt oppressed the Israelites. Egypt took advantage of people. And God uses plagues to deliver these people from the power of Egypt. And now Israel, those who were delivered, now have a society. And now Israel is the one who is doing the oppression. And so what does God do? God uses the same plagues. Yet Egypt didn't, or yet Israel didn't see. What's, what's fascinating about, about the way that, that the Exodus is used in, uh, across the Old Testament, across the Hebrew Bible, it, it becomes the foundation for the Israelite relationship with God. Uh, the foundation for the Israelite claim to have some kind of special status as the people of God. Uh, to conceptualize the way they understand how they relate to God and how they relate to the rest of the world as a result. But there's one point in Amos where Amos makes a really uh, startling claim. Uh, uh, and when I say startling, I, I mean that like in a positive sense, like a very amazing claim here. Amos chapter 9, verse 7. Amos says to the Israelites, well, uh, speaking through uh, the Lord speaking through Amos, did I not bring Israel up from Egypt? And the answer would be yes. That is why Israel claims to have this, this special relationship with God. But then the prophet goes on. And the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Arameans from Kerr. And, and here, here's why this is so, so fascinating to me. Because... The prophet basically says, you claim to have this unique connection to God, to God, this unique understanding of God, because of this event that you have in your past, the Exodus. You can always go back to the Exodus to say, God was there for us then. That's how we know that we are God's people. And basically what the prophet says is, yeah, but didn't God bring up the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Arameans? Basically saying, yeah, but hasn't God done similar things with other peoples? which is fascinating to think about. You know, a lot of times we, we think about um, God working in our lives in ways that we can see. And uh, as a result, we could overlook the ways in which God works in other people's lives in ways that we do not see. One of the things that the Exodus event shows is that God becomes, God is sovereign over all the nations. You know, so we mentioned that one of the things we see in the book of Exodus is God essentially goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the most powerful empire in the world, at least as, as, um, as Exodus presents it at the time. Uh, we recall that when, 
when two peoples went to war, it wasn't just them fighting. It was their gods would fight also. And whichever people was victorious, well, it was because your god was stronger and your god gave more help. And so uh, if the Egyptians capture the Israelites and make them into slaves, and that is a sign that the Egyptian gods were stronger and that the Israelite god was not able to protect them. That, that's kind of how the ancient world worked. And so when all of a sudden God shows up and is fighting on behalf of the Israelites, is fighting on behalf of a group of slaves, it, it is uh, God going toe-to-toe with the pantheon of the most powerful empire in the world. And God comes out victorious. And so that's one of the things that those plagues show. That That's one of the reasons why we have so many plagues is because we see God, uh, the God of the Bible, the God of the Israelites, systematically going um, down the Egyptian pantheon, so to speak, down the realms of uh, Egyptian deities, showing that when it comes to um, when it comes to the Nile River, whatever God the Israelites want to worship cannot hold a candle to the creator of this world. When it comes to the sun, uh, the, the Egyptian god Ra cannot stand up to the creator of this world. Every time it shows that there is, um, that there is one god who is sovereign over all things. And so when the Israelites go marching out of Egypt, now a free people, that shows that ultimately God is the highest authority. That shows uh, that never again do the Israelites have to fear another nation that is bigger or more powerful because God always gets the final word. And so we see that message echo throughout the rest of the Bible. Do not be afraid of this other nation. Do not be afraid of that other people. Do not sell your loyalty for political favor to this group or to that group. Because we know that at the end of the day, God is sovereign. So Isaiah chapter 10, for example, in in Isaiah um, 10, Assyria now is the enemy. Assyria is the threat. And the uh, Jerusalem in particular is not strong enough to fight back. And so in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 24, the text says, Assyria is the threat, or it says, therefore, this is what the Lord, the Almighty says. My people who live in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians who beat you with a rod and lift up a club against you, just like Egypt did. Now, it's already setting us up, right? Because it's saying, look, the Assyrians are treating you the way the Egyptians treated you. And we saw what God did to protect you from the Egyptians. Verse 25, very soon my anger against you will end. My wrath will be directed to their destruction. The Lord Almighty will uh, lash them um, as when he struck down Midian at the rock of Oreb. And he will raise his staff over the waters as he did in Egypt. In that day, their burden will be lifted from your shoulders, their yoke from your neck. The yoke will be broken because you have grown. It's essentially saying, don't be afraid of those other peoples. God delivered you once. God can deliver you again. And we see that that sentiment echoed throughout the Hebrew prophets whenever they warn against uh, selling your loyalty to another empire to try and gain political favor or political privilege. No, because we know that ultimately God is more powerful than that empire. And we know that ultimately God has the final word. Also, a remarkably powerful thing for us to reflect on in the modern world 
where sometimes Christians are tempted to offer their political loyalties in, uh, in exchange for certain political favors. This sets the stage for what we often call the second exodus. Um, all throughout the Hebrew prophets, we get this in many prophets where they present uh, a second exodus as taking place. Remember that in the history of the Israelite people, uh, they come into the land, uh, they settle the land around about 1000 BC. They set up a monarchy. That's about when we get kind of the time of King David <laughs> and so on. But in 722 um, or in 922 BCE, the kingdom split. It's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And in 722, the northern kingdom is conquered by the Assyrians. They're taken away. And in 586, the southern kingdom is conquered by the Babylonians. They're taken away. And so what happens is all the Israelite people in some way find themselves once again living in someone else's land. Once again, living as a foreigner in someone else's land where they can be taken advantage of, where they often are enslaved. And there's this question. There's this real crisis that I think happens in... Um, in the development of sort of, of Israelite thought of Israelite religion, especially when Jerusalem is destroyed in 586. Because at that moment, the temple is destroyed. The monarchy is destroyed and they lose the land. And, you know, remember, God, God gave you the temple to worship him. So why would God allow that temple to be destroyed? And didn't God give the Israelites uh, the land? Isn't that part of the promise in the biblical narrative, in, in the biblical story? Um, and so did he take it away? And so there's sort of this, this, this question, I think, that emerges during this time period. Um, are we still the people of God? Or have we lost that? The Israelite people, uh, or the Judean people, we could say at this time period, find themselves once again living in someone else's land enslaved. What are they going to do? How are they going to get out of this? What happens is the prophets show up and they start saying, well, you know what? God found you as slaves in a foreign land once, and God delivered you. If God has done it once, God can do it again. And so they start talking about how God is going to do this second exodus. We see this in, in Isaiah 11 in particular. Uh, Isaiah 11, 10 through 16, it says, in, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the survivors of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterraneans. He will raise up a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. And we can skip down to verse 15. The Lord will dry up the Gulf of the Egyptian Sea, with a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. Where, what, what does that remind us of? That reminds us of, of the parting of, of the Red Sea in, in many English translations, the Reed Sea in, uh, in Hebrew. Um, he will gather it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross. And there will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was a way for Israel when they came up from Egypt. What is this saying? It's saying if God delivered you once, God can do it again, right? Uh, God delivered them from Egypt once, so if they find themselves in the power of an empire once again, God can show up and do it again. The second exodus. It's hard to, under, to understate how impactful the exodus story is uh, in, 
in the subsequent biblical tradition and the subsequent biblical narratives. It forms the foundation for how uh, the Israelites understand their relationship with God. It forms the foundation for how the Israelites understand their responsibilities to one another and to other people inside of this world. Remember, you were once enslaved in Egypt, therefore you now have a responsibility to be sure that people don't get taken advantage of in your society, to be sure that foreigners don't get taken advantage of in your society, to be sure that the vulnerable do not get taken advantage of in your society. But it also forms a foundation for this entire biblical concept of hope. The idea that whenever we find ourselves in a tight spot, we can have faith and confidence that God will deliver us. Why? Because God did it once before. And we know that if God has done it for us once before, God can do it again. It does not matter if it's in Egypt. It does not matter if it's in Assyria. It does not matter if it's in Babylon. Our God is the king of the universe. Our God is sovereign over the nations. Our God can deliver us again. This even shapes how we understand Jesus in the New Testament. There are many instances in which the New Testament uses this Exodus imagery. So for example, ju just for example, we could take the book of Matthew. Matthew very much presents Jesus uh, using imagery from Moses, using imagery from the Exodus. And remember, the Exodus is the event in which God takes a, a, a group of, of powerless people, a group of slaves, and turns them into a nation, turns them into a people, and establishes this covenant with them, this relationship with them. And so the book of Matthew presents Jesus as doing a similar thing, taking a group of people, uh, turning them into a people, with this covenantal relationship with God. So, Matthew opens with this story of the Magi coming to, coming to see Jesus. And the way that story ends is with, with Herod killing the children in Bethlehem. There's this threat. And, but uh, Joseph is warned in a dream. And so Joseph flees. He takes Jesus, he takes Mary, and flees. Where? Down to Egypt. Well, how does the book of Genesis get the Israelites into Egypt? Well, there's a threat in the land. They can't survive there. And so what do they do? They flee down to Egypt. And, and I should take a moment to recognize that uh, we, we should probably be cognizant of the fact that the Jesus that we follow, the Jesus that we proclaim, the Jesus um, in whose name we live and breathe in this world knows what it was like to be taken from his homeland in a, in, in, as a young person taken across the border illegally to escape violence in his homeland. Jesus knows what it was like to be taken as a refugee at an early age. And I'm just going to leave that right, I'm, I'm just going to leave that right there because that's another one of those little tidbits that we need to reflect on in our modern American society when we think about what we're going to do, uh, how we're going to accept, whether or not we're going to accept refugees who are fleeing violence in their homelands. But anyways, Jesus goes down to Egypt. The Israelites went down to Egypt. Well, how did the Israelites come out of Egypt? Well, they crossed through the, the Red Sea or the Reed Sea. They passed through the waters. So what's the very next story after Jesus is taken down into Egypt in uh, Matthew chapter 2? Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus. Now Jesus is passing through the waters. Okay, uh, 
after the Israelites pass, uh, pass through the waters, they go into the wilderness, they wander through the wilderness for 40 years, right? Okay, so after Jesus passes through the waters in the baptism in Matthew chapter 3, what does he do immediately following in Matthew chapter 4? Immediately following, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. This is the temptation. Do you see the parallels between the life of Jesus and the Exodus event? Jesus goes down into Egypt uh, to escape violence, uh, to escape a threat, um, and then passes through the waters of baptism, and then goes out into the wilderness for 40 days where there's this temptation, in the same way the Israelites had traveled down into Egypt to escape a threat, leave Egypt by passing through the waters, and end up wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, okay? There's another parallel. Uh, immediately after this wandering through the wilderness for, for uh, in, or this wilderness wandering for 40 days, um, what does Jesus do next? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes up on a mountain, does that sound like anyone? And then Jesus begins teaching on matters of Torah. So Jesus goes up a mountain and begins telling the Israelites or telling, telling the people, you have heard it said, and then he quotes Torah. And then what Jesus does is he interprets Torah for, uh, for the people. Does that remind us of anyone? Moses going up the mountain and then coming back down with Torah. And in fact, if you look at the book of Matthew as a whole, Matthew collects the teachings of Jesus into five sections. How many books are in Torah? Five. All throughout the book of Matthew, it's presenting Jesus using the imagery of Torah. Uh, we, we see the same thing in John. So in, in uh, John 19, for example, it presents Jesus as the Passover lamb. Remember, Passover was the celebration that remembers the Exodus. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do something a, a little bit different. They present the Last Supper as a Passover celebration. But once again, we get this Passover imagery here. The Exodus event becomes foundational for understanding not just the subsequent developments of Israelite religion, the subsequent developments of the, of the Jewish faith. Um, it becomes foundational for understanding uh, this biblical concept of hope that emerges in the prophets. Um, it becomes foundational for understanding this, this concept of, of how we should conduct ourselves around others in Torah, for how we should care for people during their hour of need in Torah, how we should care for people who are vulnerable in society in Torah. And it becomes foundational for how we understand Jesus and what Jesus does in this world. Because in, in the Christian sense, we see Jesus as performing an Exodus type of event in that during the Exodus, the Israelites come out of Egypt, out of bondage, and are made into a people with this covenant relationship with God. And in the same way, we see Jesus as ushering people out of a form of spiritual bondage into this covenant relationship with God. It becomes really difficult to underestimate how, or, or really difficult to overestimate how, um, how important the Exodus tradition is for the subsequent development of the biblical story. My friends, I most certainly hope that this has been uh, valuable for you, that this has been beneficial. I most certainly hope that in all of this, uh, the words of Torah are etched into our hearts so that we can take them out from here to live them. Because sometimes the most powerful echoes of Torah into this world come by way of the actions of the people of God who live out Torah. My friends, I hope that uh, as we reflect upon the Exodus event, that it will shape how we conceptualize our relationship with God, that it will shape how we conceptualize our responsibilities to one another 
and our responsibilities, not just to our neighbors, but to those that we do not know. And I hope that it will continue to shape the way we understand what Jesus offers to the world through the Christian story. May you go in peace. Amen.